We will worship our God now again in the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his holy word. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning now in the New Testament to Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. We launched this new sermon series last Sunday. Our theme in this new series is what I'm calling the habits of grace. The habits of grace. The Christian life that we're called to live. It's a life that's all about our experience of the grace of God. And at the very same time, it's a life in which we experience that grace. In part, as God blesses our own regular efforts to seek and serve him. So that's our theme now and will be for weeks and months to come. The Christian life is a life that's all about our experience of the grace of God, and it's a life in which we experience that grace in part as he kindly blesses our regular efforts to seek and serve him. The habits of grace. And remember last Sunday, we looked at 2 Timothy to get started. We turned to 2 Timothy 1 because that's a very good place to go when you want to lay a foundation for a life of grace. Remember what we heard last Sunday, 2 Timothy 1. Paul wrote that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. That's what we looked at last week in 2 Timothy 1. And remember what we noticed in those verses, the three bricks that we noticed in the foundation that we're standing upon and living upon. One was the truth of election. In eternity past, God chose us. The next was the truth of redemption. In time past, Christ redeemed us. And then the last was the calling to holiness in the present. Right here, right now, God calls us to live the kind of lives that fit the fact that we belong to him now and not to the world anymore. Election, redemption, holiness. That was last week in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And that brings us to this week. We're not turning too far away from 2 Timothy, in fact, just a page or two, to Titus. We are going to focus on the end of this chapter 2, but I want to read the whole of it, because what Paul says leading up to verse 11 is important for us to understand what he's getting at, beginning at verse 11. So listen now, Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, 
working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is... God's word, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We remember the words of young Samuel in the Old Testament, and we make them now our own. As he said, we say now, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I remember a particularly memorable classroom session from when I was in seminary all those years ago. One of our former professors who'd left the seminary to become a pastor He came back to campus one day from the place where he was then pastoring, and we had a Q&A session with him. And it turned into a a rather wide-ranging Q&A session, in part because he was coming back to us now as somebody who was serving in pastoral ministry. And we were a bunch of folks who were in training to become ministers. Many of us had already begun to serve as pastoral interns here and there. And so we were keenly interested in what he had to say about the work of pastoral ministry from the front lines. We leaned in and we listened and we asked lots of questions and we kept listening as he kept answering them. And yet a lot that was said in the course of that wide-ranging Q&A in a seminary classroom would have been of interest to any Christian. Why? Because whenever you start giving advice and counsel about the work of pastoral ministry, 
you end up inevitably saying a lot, or at least implying a lot, about the Christian life that we're all called to live. Not just because ministers are Christians too, but because the work of pastoral ministry is for the sake of the members of the congregation living that life themselves. And so in a sense, this instruction, this this advice, this counsel about pastoral ministry ends up being for everybody. Well, reading Titus is just like that. In the New Testament, the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, those three, they've come to be labeled the pastoral letters. And they're called that because in each of those three letters, Paul is writing to another man about how to be a pastor. And of course, Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul had plenty of his own experience to draw upon from the front lines. And yet what he wrote to those men, to Timothy and Titus, ends up being for everybody. Because there's so much about the Christian life in what Paul writes to these Christian pastors about pastoring, Titus included. This letter is in God's word for everybody. And that's what's going on here in chapter 2, which I just read for us. This is a chapter in which Paul is teaching Titus about teaching Christians to live holy lives. And notice in verses 1 through 10, Paul walks him through the different kinds of people that make up a Christian church. Older men and younger men. Older women and younger women. Servants too. Paul says, Titus, teach them all. To live holy lives. Even Titus himself. Paul says as a pastor. You've got to set an example. You're no exception to this rule. So that's what's going on here. In chapter 2. Paul is teaching Titus. About being a pastor. Including teaching Christians to live holy lives. And and he, he points out. These different groups in the church. And how Titus should teach them. How Titus should relate to them. And that is what leads him to say what he begins to say with verse 11, which is where our passage picks up today. All of that is what leads him into talking again about the grace of God. Just like we were saying last week, the Christian life is all about the grace of God. It's founded upon it. It rests upon it. We live that life standing upon the foundation of divine grace. So you might say this morning, we're going to look down at the foundation again and notice three more bricks that go into that foundation that we stand upon and live upon. So three points this morning about the grace of God that will help us to think through this life that we're called to live. And I'll tell you right now what they are. The first is the appearing of grace. The second is the effect of grace. And the third is the purpose of grace. Those three. The appearing of it, the effect of it, and the purpose of it as well. So let's begin with the appearing 
of grace. Take a look at verse 11. This is where we get started. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Remember what God's grace is. It's his favor shown to sinners in order to save them. It's his favor shown to sinners in order to save them. And what Paul's saying here is that the grace of God appeared in human history. When Christ appeared. When Christ came into the world and lived and suffered and died and rose. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's not that God wasn't gracious before all of that happened. He certainly was. Read your Old Testament. God was certainly gracious toward his people Israel in the Old Testament long before Christ came. But when Christ did appear, when the Son of God came into the world and lived and suffered and died and rose, that had the effect of putting the grace of God on display in a new way, like it never had been on display before. It's like when you're given some magnificent gift, maybe a Christmas gift that blows you away. Or it's like when somebody comes to your rescue in some way. Maybe it's someone who stops and helps you with a flat tire on a rainy night. One of the things that makes that moment so marvelous is what it reveals about them. There's something about them that appears in that moment. It's not that they suddenly changed and became in that moment kind and caring and thoughtful for the very first time. They already were. But in that moment, their kindness, their caring, their thoughtfulness, we might even say their grace, appears. And that's what made it wonderful. Well, that's what happened when the Son of God came into the world and did what he did in order to save the most magnificent gift from God, the most timely, urgent rescue from God, and it had the effect of making the grace of God appear like never before. All the more so when you stop and think about what Paul says at the end of that verse, verse 11. Because notice what he says. Look again at verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing salvation for all people. Now, we need to get clear on what Paul does and doesn't mean by that. When Paul says that God's grace brings salvation for all people, he does not mean that God's grace actually saves Each and every single person who has ever lived or shall live. The Bible makes it clear that that's not the case. Some people are everlastingly lost. As difficult as that is to contemplate. Some people, many people, die in their sins apart from Christ and are everlastingly lost. So Paul... He he doesn't mean that. He can't mean that. Instead, what Paul does mean when he says that the grace of God brings salvation for all people is that God is saving all sorts of people for himself. For example, older men. 
and younger men, older women, and younger women, servants too. In other words, the groups that Paul's just been writing about in this very chapter in Titus, chapter 2. And we can keep going. Masters too, rich and poor, high and low, Jew and Gentile, God is saving all sorts of people for himself. This grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ, it's broad, it's expansive, it's large-hearted, it's magnanimous, it knows no boundaries. I wouldn't be surprised if you know somebody like that. If you've met somebody who's like that, if you haven't, maybe you can imagine it. Someone who's taken an interest in you by name. Someone who's shown kindness to you personally. And then, lo and behold, what you come to discover about them is that that's the way they are with all sorts of people. Not just you. Not just people like you. You come to discover that he's that way with his high-powered colleague and his doorman. He's that way with his own daughter and with the friend that his daughter brings home for Thanksgiving dinner that he's never even met. He's that way with his doctor, who's, who's an expert in her field, and the nurse's assistant, who just comes into his room to draw blood. He's got grace for all sorts of people that he encounters, and not just the ones who are nearby, not just the ones who are impressive. There's something broad, expansive, large-hearted, magnanimous, unbounded about the kindness and care and thoughtfulness that he shows. God's like that, but even more so. Because God doesn't just encounter people and respond to them. He sovereignly chooses them and marvelously redeems them and thoroughly saves them. He's that way with all sorts of people. The grace of God has appeared. And that's what his grace is like. So that's the first of our three this morning. The appearing of grace. And that brings us to the second. Which is the effect of grace. Verse 11, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then he says this, Training us to renounce ungodliness. And he goes on from there. The grace of God has appeared, training us. Think about that. Here we're we're reflecting upon the grace of God, which is his favor shown to sinners in order to save them. Well, the question becomes, what's the effect of it? What's the effect of grace? What, What does it actually do in people's lives when God sets his favor on them like that? Well, here's the answer. Two-word answer. What's the effect of grace? Answer. Grace trains. Grace trains. In other words, the grace of God has appeared not just for the sake of appearing. It's not just for show. It's not just to be seen. If that were the case... There would actually be something lacking about the grace. 
If it's just for show, and we're left unchanged as we observe it. No, the grace of God has appeared, not just for the sake of appearing, but in order to train us. God shows us his saving favor in a way that actually teaches and forges us for holy living. Grace trains. That's the effect of it. And we can say more than that. Notice three ways in which grace trains. Right here in what Paul says. First of all this, grace trains us to renounce. Verse 12. Grace trains us, Paul says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It may not be popular in the world today. It may sound cold and harsh and unduly restrictive in the world's ears today, but it's actually holy and righteous and good. God's grace trains us to say no to some things. Some things that we might want, even though we shouldn't want them. Grace trains us to renounce sin. So that's one. Grace trains us to renounce. Here's a second. Grace trains us, Paul says, to live. To live. Because he says it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's how he puts it in verse 12. In other words, this training program, it's not just negative, teaching us to renounce, teaching us to say no. It's also positive, teaching us to live rightly, teaching us to live as we should, teaching us to say yes to holiness. So grace trains us to renounce. It also trains us to live. And then here's the third. Grace trains us, believe it or not, to wait. Look how he puts it there. He says, grace trains us to be those who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace trains us to wait. And I suppose it might seem a little funny at first, the thought that we should need to be trained to wait. Of all the things that we need to be trained for, we might think surely waiting isn't one of them. Who needs to be trained to look at a clock and watch, watch the hands go round or watch the numbers flip? It's entirely passive, right, waiting? Who needs to be trained for that, right? Wrong. Waiting is not passive. And for sinners, it's not easy. We do need to be trained for it. Here we are waiting for Jesus to come back at the end of the age. Well, it takes training to long for that instead of just watching the clock. Because that longing doesn't just happen. And it takes, it takes training so that we're confident about the thing that we're waiting for. That confidence doesn't come naturally to us as sinners. And it takes training so that our eyes are fixed on Jesus himself and not just on the benefits that he'll bring when he comes. 
And it takes training so that we don't end up getting distracted with all kinds of silly end-time scenarios that the Bible knows nothing about. So yes, absolutely, grace trains us to wait. So, what's the effect of grace? Our second point this morning, what's the effect of it? Grace trains. Trains us to renounce. Trains us to live. Trains us to wait. And it's worth underlining, this training, this is one of the glories of grace. This is not a mark against it. We're not supposed to be left thinking, Grace would be even greater if it just left me alone. Now, this is one of the the glories of grace. This is one of the glories of God that He loves us like this, that He loves us too much to leave us as we are. I was thinking about it this way. Maybe this illustration will help. Imagine a coach. Let's say the coach of a men's college basketball program. And this is a coach who's got a well-earned reputation far and wide for being the kind of guy that you want to play for. I mean, just to be recruited by him feels like an honor, his favor, legend. The kids who show up for their very first practice with him their freshman year, what are they going to find? What are they going to discover about him in practice? What they're going to discover about him is that he really drains them. And that's clear from day one. And none of those kids, at least none of them in their right mind, is going to say, wait a minute, I thought you were the kind of guy that people wanted to play for. I thought you had this well-earned reputation far and wide. I thought just to be recruited by you was an honor. What's this all about? You got us running drills. And you're telling us when we're not doing them right. And then you're having us run those same drills again. And you're talking about these habits that you want us to develop, these routines and rhythms of nutrition and sleep and not sleep. What's this all about? Well, of course, the answer, the answer that that coach could give is, why do you think I have the reputation I have? Why do you think people say that it's an honor to be recruited by me and to play for me? They say that precisely because I do train my players in the way that you're discovering. The fact that I insist on drills and correct and drill again and insist on habits and routines and rhythms, that doesn't mean you made a mistake coming here. Or that you've fallen out of my favor. No, that's precisely why people want to come play here. I care about my players. I care about you. And I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Now, like like any illustration, any analogy, we, we do have to be careful. I realize there are plenty of coaches out there who are too hard on their players. Who have a bit of a complex about it. God's not like that. If it helps, picture John Wooden. John Wooden was the legendary men's basketball coach at UCLA for nearly 30 years until 1975. 
arguably the greatest coach, not just in men's college basketball history, but in the entire history of big-time college athletics. UCLA won the championship ten times over the course of 12 years under Wooden. And as great a coach as he was, everyone knew him, said he was an even better man. And the men who had the privilege of playing for him, they loved him for the rest of their lives. And make no mistake, John Wooden trained his players. He drilled and corrected and taught and shaped his players. And those men who had the privilege of playing for him, they loved him, not in spite of the fact that he trained them, but precisely because he did. Because they knew that it was his way of caring about them. And you see, that's a picture of what we're talking about here. The effect of grace This isn't some contradiction of grace. This is actually the effect of it. This is one of the glories of it. This is one of the things that we love about God, whose grace it is. Grace trains to renounce, to live, and to wait for Jesus. That's the effect of grace. So the first was the appearing of grace. The second was the effect of grace. And that brings us to our third of three, which is the purpose of it. Big picture here. Ultimate goal here. What's the purpose of this grace that has appeared and that trains us? Well, look at verse 14. What does Paul say about Jesus in verse 14? He says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen to it again. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the point, short and sweet. Christ died for this. More fully, he lived and suffered and died and rose for this. The purpose all along was that he might redeem us and purify us so as to transform us. This was the purpose all along. The purpose of grace all along was that Christ might have a people for himself who are committed to holy living. That Christ might have a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And just the fact that Paul puts it that way is striking. Zealous for good works. We can get to the point that we're so insistent on the fact that we're saved by grace and not by works that we can lapse into the mistake of being allergic to any talk about good works at all, let alone being zealous for them. But there's nothing to be allergic to here. We ought to boast in the calling to do good. We ought to glory in the calling to be zealous to do good, to be that kind of people, to have that kind of passion and fire 
forged within us so that it's our very character from deep within. And this is a nice connection, I think, between our second point and our third. Remember, our second point was the effect of grace. Grace trains. And now our third point is the the overall purpose of grace, which is that we might be a people zealous to do good. Well, that's the connection. The training, the training program has that goal in view. Even the training is finally for the purpose of our character forged deep within. Not just outward habits that we get good at, but but a zeal that is our character deep within. That got me thinking about those coaches again. You know, whether it's John Wooden at UCLA in the 60s and 70s, or it's Tony Bennett. You know I had to mention Tony Bennett. He was the men's basketball coach at UVA right now. What makes those men truly great coaches, and there are others like them, is that their purpose, finally, is to forge the young men who are playing for them. They're training them, not just for games, but for life. And they'll say so. They'll make no bones about it. They don't apologize for it. They're candid about it when they recruit. What matters to them more than wins and championships is what their players grow up to become and the ways they go on to serve for the rest of their lives. Even the training is finally for the purpose of character. And I will say, that's why it's always satisfying when those coaches are the ones who get the wins and the championships. So the appearing of grace, the effect of grace, the purpose of grace, they're all in here, all three of them. And and what Paul says here, this is something we ought to take seriously. This is weighty. And I say that not only because it's in God's word and that settles it, but also because of what Paul says in verse 15 after he has written all of this. Look at verse 15. After everything that he said about Titus teaching Christians to live holy lives, after everything that he said about grace appearing and training and changing us, he says this in verse 15. Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus, let no one disregard you. The things that we're talking about here this morning, these are things that we ought to sit up and listen to. Because at this point, we're way past basketball drills and wins and championships. The appearing of grace, the effect of grace, and the purpose of it. Let me wrap up here with just a few words of encouragement and application on each and every one of those points, all three of them. First of all, the appearing of grace. Christian, 
Take that personally. Because it is personal. That's just it. What happened in human history when the Son of God came into the world and did what had to be done in order to save, what happened in human history, Christian, was God showing you what He's like toward you. How about that? That, That's part of the meaning of history itself. When the Son of God appeared, grace appeared, and it was your God showing you what He's like toward you. God made His grace appear, and Christian, He staged that demonstration. He staged that show for your eyes. Not for your eyes only, but for yours personally. And you should stand in awe of that. The appearing of grace. So too, the effect of grace. Christian, take that one personally. Make no mistake, you are now enrolled in a training program. And it's a training program with habits and rhythms and routines and disciplines and drills. Things like going to church and reading your Bible and spending time in prayer and fellowshipping with God's people. You are enrolled in a training program, not because God doesn't love you, but because He does. Because He loves you too much to leave you as you are, and He knows just what the training is that you need. And then finally, the purpose of grace. Christian, take this one personally too. Christ died for this. He died for you to make you zealous for good works. And I would say, don't be shy about putting it that way. Zealous for good works. It's good to be zealous when you're zealous for what's good. It's good to be zealous when you're zealous for what's good. Don't be afraid of zeal. Don't be afraid of of passion and fire and thoughtfulness and carefulness about good works. Christ died for your zeal. I mean, to make you that way, deep within. Let the world say what it will about zeal and zealots. You keep your eyes on him and not on the world. Christ died for your zeal to make you that way. Don't be shy about it. Instead, let us together fan it into flame. Let's pray together. Our great God, we worship you this day as the God of grace. We marvel at your appearing, the appearing of your grace in human history, and we take it personally, for you manifested your grace for us. And we thank you for the effect of grace in our lives that we should be trained, and we marvel at the purpose of grace for our lives that we should be a people holy unto Christ. So we boast in your grace today. We stand upon it. We would live upon it as our foundation. May it be so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.